Whether you're looking for a convenient refresher course, or a way to earn your Pragmatic certification at your own speed, or the chance to take a Pragmatic course from your specific corner of the world, then Foundations On Demand is the solution you need. Get the same great content, tools, and templates our Foundations course is famous for in a flexible and easy-to-use online learning platform. Learn the skills you need to build and market products people want to buy. And earn your Pragmatic Institute certification anywhere, anytime. No more travel worries, no more time zone issues, just truly great training. Experience the new way of training with Foundations On Demand from Pragmatic Institute. Visit pragmaticinstitute.com foundations to learn more. Welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Paul Young, instructor at Pragmatic Institute and your host for today's episode. The Pragmatic Instructor team, we meet every week to have discussions about what we're seeing in the industry and the implications out there in the market. And so to help for today's discussion, I'm joined by a few excellent minds from our instructor team. Those include Steve Gaylor. Cindy Cruzado, Amy Graham, and Will Scott. Let's start off by doing a quick round of introductions. So those of you that aren't watching on the YouTube channel can put some voices to names and faces. I'll kick off. My name again is Paul Young. I've been an instructor with Pragmatic for about 12 years. And prior to that, I was a product management and marketing executive at companies like Cisco and Dell, and also a bunch of startups here in Austin, Texas. That's where I live. Let me hand off to you next, Cindy. Hi, everyone. I joined Pragmatic about five years ago. And uh, before that, I've been based here in Washington, D.C. and worked in education, weather, meteorology, financial uh, institutions. And we think about payments and processing as well as CRM solutions and have for my entire career been very blessed with being in the product management and product marketing world. So great to, great to be here. All right, Amy. Hi, all. Amy Graham and Cindy, you've been here for six and a half years. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I'm rounding. Yeah. So I joined Pragmatic six and a half years ago, just a couple months before Cindy did. I'm based out of Denver, Colorado. I've got a background in operations, managing software development teams, product teams, software services, and uh, super excited to be here today. All right. Let's go next to Will Scott. Hi, everyone. My name is Will Scott. It's a pleasure to be here today. I am Pragmatic's newest instructor, so I'm very privileged to join this group of veterans around me here. My background is in B2B product marketing and management, 25 years experience, big companies, small companies, hardware, software, services, and SaaS as an individual contributor, a leader, and as a consultant as well. But it's a great pleasure to be here today. All right. Thanks, Will. And lastly, Steve Gaylor. Hi, uh, Steve Gaylor here, joining from uh, southeastern Oklahoma. I have been an instructor at Pragmatic for almost 10 years now. It'll be 10 years here in a couple months. And also spent about 25 years in industry with all kinds of different technology companies, uh, hardware, software, services, software as a service, combination of, of all those things, and several different leadership roles, product management, product marketing, operations, 
account management and different roles like that. So uh, excited to be here with everybody else. I love these discussions where we we can get into our interesting debate. And I'm kind of keeping an eye on the clock to see how long it takes somebody to uh, to speak up and say, what problem are you trying to solve? Because we'll definitely get <laughs> to that point, I have a feeling. Yeah, we're going to start a timer. I, I'm guessing it's not going to be too long. <laughs> All right. So we got a bunch of really good brains here with a lot of uh, variety of experiences. Today, what we're talking about is how do we put everything that we teach here at Pragmatic into practice, right? It's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to do it. And, you know, all of us on today's discussion have had those experiences, some good and some maybe not so good of implementing, you know, and creating that market driven culture, using all the tools and techniques that we teach on the framework. But how do you actually implement this stuff? You know, for those of you that are listening, you know, how do you create a market driven culture? How do you bring those skills to life that we teach in our sessions? That can be really tricky because change is never easy. Right. And it involves, you know, some discomfort. And so I wanted to start off with Amy, because I know you're, uh, this is a passion area for you. When you think about implementing some of the, the work that we talk about in what we teach, you know, what are some of the big barriers, the big challenges that, that you've seen in bringing this work to life? How much time do we have? <laughs> uh, gosh, where do I start? I guess to, if I were to narrow it down, there's probably like, Top, some top things that come to mind immediately. One is not having leadership support. So we often get folks who come through training or like, for example, if I were to come to training and then if I go back to my, my organization and I don't have support from the top down, that can be a huge barrier. So not having leadership or executive support to empower product professionals to actually implement what we are now teaching them. I think that's a big one. I also think a huge barrier is getting overwhelmed. This framework is phenomenal. It's fantastic. It's job changing, life changing, product changing. It can change organizations, but it can also be really overwhelming in terms of where do we start? And then I'd probably say, ah, gosh, not having, honestly, I don't know how to say this, but not having the discipline to just do the right thing and stick to it because it's easier to just look away and move quick. So those are my top three. The fires are always there, right? They're always burning. And it's very tempting to go back to those. Yep. And if you're a professional firefighter and you're good at it, that's just what you're going to keep doing. Well, and many organizations reward that, right? They reward the firefighter because like, oh, look, you know, here's, here comes Will. He swung swung in at the 11th hour to help sales close that deal. And yep. isn't he a hero? And like, one of the things that I always like to share with with teams whenever I'm leading them is that if the culture of the organization rewards the firefighter, it creates arsonists. You know, people, <laughs> yeah. pe- people who learn that the way to get stuff done is to set fires because that's how we, uh, we, we get stuff and resources. So yeah. anyways, good insight. Steve, I think, what, what, I think, um, I'm sorry, Cindy, go, go for it. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the one of the biggest barriers to to somebody individually looking at how do I change what I do is roles and responsibilities. Feeling like these activities are great, but what am I expected to do? There's more there I think I should be doing. And there are some classic roles and responsibilities, things that organizations run up to as they're evolving their development methodology. It's product owner business analyst, product manager, who does what in that kind of mix. 
But as product marketing develops and gets strength, it's product manager versus product marketer. How how is that work divided? What do we do together? And you know, when there's any gray area in in that, it just makes everything else that's challenging just even more challenging to navigate. Yeah. So roles are a challenge. Top down leadership is a challenge. The status quo, managing that is a challenge. Yeah. Uh-huh. Steve, Will, did y'all have anything to add to that? I mean, well, we're I, just getting started on this. I, I think, yeah, we're, I mean, they, they, we could spend a long time on this question, as, as Amy said. I think I would like to echo a couple of things that Amy said. I was a part of a number of Nahito visits that we did with clients of ours, two, three, well, they're ongoing, really. And the number one trend that we found among organizations who successfully implemented and who really brought the change to a market-driven culture was support from the top down. Without a doubt, anyone who was successful had support from the top down. And we spent, you know, a fair amount of time with companies who were less successful. And those that had a lack of success, oftentimes, either either senior management wasn't supportive or they weren't bought in, right? one or the other, right? Each of those creating different degrees of, of issue as you go through the process. So uh, I think that's a big, big thing. The other comment I would make, you know, you're talking about firefighters. If you look at those activities on the on the framework, and we talk about the right-hand side being execution-oriented, and you get over there in that very last column where we're supporting the rest of the organization, and that's where the fires are burning the hottest, right? If you think about those execution-oriented activities, there's you have a lot more clarity around that, right? You know if you did something right or wrong, you get the pat on the back. You get you know the invite to the, the sales retreat because you were the you know sales support MVP kind of thing, even though you were in product. And so instant gratification and, and instantly knowing whether or short-term knowing whether you did well or not, that stuff on the upper left-hand side, the strategic stuff, which is really where the market-driven approach begins, that stuff's a lot scarier, right? You don't know if you were right or wrong for a year, two years, three years. The reward payback on that, you know, by the time you've done well in a given product area, you may already be off to another product before you even know if you made the right decisions. And so I think that's a part of this gravitation as well as that, that instant gratification, that short-term feedback loop makes it easier to focus on now and easier to deal with the fires and easier for them to be a priority when reality is if you, if you spend time on that, on the strategic activities and do them right, all that stuff on the right-hand side is easier. You don't have as many yeah. fires. I like, I like that, Steve. We're always looking for that dopamine hit, aren't we? That's what we do with those uh... It's the truth. Yeah. yeah. Nothing like being celebrated for being the hero. You know, Paul, when I, when I think about this, I try and think more, I think change in an organization is absolutely, you know, the difficulty of change in the organization is not limited to product management or marketing. It's just hard to do. And I try and think, well, why is it, why is change hard? And this is sort of my reflection on it is change is scary to people because they don't, it's unknowns. They don't know what the future is going to ask them. And it might force them to redefine themselves in terms of what they're doing today. And they may not make it in the future. So whenever anyone comes to me and proposes change, like, oh, hang on a minute, till I know what I'm getting myself into, I'm going to not sort of, you know, indulge myself in that. I think the challenge of change is particularly painful in product management because the number of organizations that product management interacts with. I think if you were to change the, you know, book closing process in the finance department down the bow somewhere, that will be relatively straightforward because it probably doesn't touch many people. But think about product management, right? We're touching 
engineering, we're touching marketing, we're touching sales, we're touching support, we're touching services, we're touching the exec. So it's not just us changing, it truly is an organizational change. And I suspect that's why it's probably front and center for us when we look at that organizational change. It's not just changing how you close the books at the end of the quarter, it's changing how you think about your core business, which is your products. Yeah. Well. That's my perspective. No, I think, I think we're, so we're getting onto something. The, I sometimes describe the, uh, the, the firefighting aspect on the right that you were talking about, Steve, as a sugar rush yeah. because you get that immediate hit that, that Will was talking about, the dopamine, whereas the stuff on the left, it's a bit more of a delayed gratification. Yeah. You know, when, if you do Nihito, right, nothing important happens in the office. If you do your market research and so on, it may be quarters, maybe even year or more before you see the the outcome of that in a product or a feature that you launch. And with, you know, short-term thinking, let's be realistic, a lot of executives are driven by that. Uh, a lot of teams are driven by that. Then sometimes it just doesn't happen. But one, one of the things we all kind of hit was the importance of top-down drive for this. To make change happen, you want to make the team smarter. You want to train them. You want to get them using the tools that we teach, you know, thinking in a more market-driven way. But we also want to push top down where the executive team is saying, yes, we want to move in this direction. So because we all kind of touched that as important, I wanted to, to drill down on that a little bit and ask y'all, you know, every one of us around this table has been in that seat of having to talk to our peers at the executive level, or perhaps as an individual contributor where you were trying to get buy-in from those above you. How do you create that top-down change? How do you create that momentum from the executive team level to move this forward? You just said it, Paul. You talked about getting buy-in. I mean, I'll tell you, I probably spent the first six months post-pragmatic training just socializing. What is the philosophy? What is pragmatic? What does it mean to be outside in? I created like a you know five-slide PowerPoint presentation, went to account management, went to sales, went to operations, went to all the different functional areas inside of the organization, just sort of introducing here's this philosophy here's what it means but then also spinning it to like here's the value you'll get if we make this change and if we start operating in this manner like here's why it matters to you sales and i tried really 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 hard to build champions in each individual functional area so that then i could take those champions and they could help me actually champion pragmatic and start to execute and then as soon as you have that buy-in, you've got that, you know, and it may take time, like I said, but when you have that, it makes the whole execution and the implementation of it way easier. Yeah. Great point, Amy. And I have seen countless examples of students kind of describing what you just said and in, in practical terms, kind of putting a little bit of proof behind that, you know, this is the value I'm going to deliver you developers, you sales and marketing by aligning the different activities in the framework as inputs to the process everybody's working through across the organization. And you just kind of, you take the the statements you're making and you actually show them how it was going to work and you, you build not only the desire for it to happen, but you build the collaboration to go make it work, yeah. you know, putting positioning as one of those inputs at the very early stages of developing out a new release and showing them how what you're going to do is going to help them in terms of a process, I think makes it real. Exactly. I think that's spot on. I think when, when I think of an executive buy-in, that can mean a lot of things, right? For me, if you're trying to lead a change initiative, executive buy-in is important, but that means you have executive support. It doesn't mean you have the executive stick. 
right? Because if you think buy-in is just being threats from the SVP, you know, the famous phrase, you know, culture eats strategy for lunch. You're going to find people finding all the reasons why it's not going to work. So it's not about, uh, you know, I'm reminded of that famous Aesop's fable where the sun and the wind have a bet about who can get the shepherd to take off his cloak. And the wind blows harder and harder and harder. And the harder the wind blows, the more the guy grabs the cloak around his neck, but the sun shines and then the coat comes off. And so I think so, so is true with change. It's not about fear and threats and the stick. It's got to be about your life's going to be better and it's good for us. That's my sense anyway. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to listen as each of you have gone. There's really two facets of that that buy-in that you've talked about there. Uh, we, you, know, you talk about executive buy-in, and we all talked about how critical that was. Then you also just talked about buy-in from the rest of the organization as well. So there's two parts of that. And I think to each of those, there's a couple of different stages. One of them, which Amy kind of alluded to, was awareness. You know, what is this market-driven thing? What are we talking about? What is this framework really all about? What do you mean when you're talking when you say outside in, you know, kind of thing versus inside out? And so there's that awareness at the executive level and the awareness across the organization. And then the second part of that is what's in it for me. And the things that are in it for the executive team, you know, you're talking about faster time to market, uh, higher margins, higher customer satisfaction, better product market fit you know, all those kinds of things. But then on the flip side of that coin, which is some of the, you know, kind of what Cindy alluded to is development, you're going to have better, you're better at requirements, you have a better understanding of what we're trying to do in the market. We're not going to tell you how, we're going to tell you what needs to happen. What are the problems we're trying to solve? Uh, marketing, we're going to give you an understanding of the people who are influencing the buying process, the buying journey they go through. What are the things they need as a part of that? So, when you get ready to develop messages and messaging and you're thinking about channels to use to get that information into the market. And so, you know, you've, you've, everybody's talked about, to me, awareness and, and buy-in, buy-in being related to what's in it for me. But the what's in it for me for the executive team is very different to the what's in it for me for the individual parts of the, the company that are, you know, we're also going to have to get support from. Yeah. You know, there's another part of this that I think is important as a message for product teams. And that is that we often think about, you know, the, the organizational process, the transformation, uh, you know, in, in the jobs and what we're doing in our projects. But there's a huge role as an individual you can make. And giving your organization following training an example of what being messenger of the market is actually, you know, be the one asking about the market, be the one bringing data to the table, be the one that that is kind of personifying what we would like everybody to do so that executives can use that as a spotlight and point to, to that yeah. as modeling behavior for everybody. I right. think that we have a lot of power as individuals. Yes. Absolutely. All right. So I want to hit y'all with a specific, perhaps a specific use case here. We talked about getting that top-down buy-in, but I think maybe 20 years ago in my career, I was recruited into a startup here in Austin, kind of late stage startup, maybe 50 to 100 employees. The founder was still highly engaged and I was brought in to build product management for the first time. And up until that point, it was the founder and the engineers. And you know how this story goes, right? The founder would go directly to the engineers and say, build this feature and they would build it. And basically the roadmap and product development was driven out of the founder's head. You know, the, the whim of the day. This founder was very into F1 racing, you know, for example. And so you started to see like racing 
analogies showing up in the user interface. You know, you'd see like a little steering wheel and dashboard and stuff like that, because like that's what was on his mind. And so when they brought me in, it was like the first time to kind of bring in that market-driven culture. And this, let's just say the founder was not really bought into that. He was kind of forced into that by his board. So I mean, I'm, I'm happy to share how I dealt with it. But I, I'm curious if y'all or anybody listening to this is facing a situation like that, where you have an executive, perhaps that yeah. executive is not bought into this idea of outside in, maybe they've got a lot of great ideas. Sometimes you see like a CTO or a founder falling into this. How would you? I think that's, you deal with that? I, I have a stab at this, Paul, because I'm so struck by how we can apply the very tenets and principles of pragmatic to this problem, right? That reluctant exec would be in our language a potential. Someone who isn't shopping, but we think they have a problem. I think if you think about changing the way an organization thinks about product management as a product, meaning you're replacing something old with something new, that everything we learn in pragmatic can be applied. What are the market problems we're solving? What are those problem-orientated capabilities? What are the features? What are the user personas, the buyer personas? How do we talk about the value of what we're doing? Almost everything applies. You know, when we get down to profitability, that probably doesn't apply. But all the tenants and disciplines, if we think of it as a product, then how do you model that, that reluctant buyer? That's a buyer persona right there, right? So how do we break down that buyer persona? What, is, what does he or she care about? What it keeps them up? How are they measured? All those things, I think, is uh, maybe one way of approaching it, you know, to eat our own dog food, as it were. I like yeah. it, Will. I think, well, sometimes I, I phrase that as a recognition that the first market we have to sell to is our executive team. As soon as you yes. realize yeah. that's your first market, then, you know, things kind of, it, it gives you a little bit different perspective. I also, you know, Paul, I think there's a couple of things that cause that scenario that you're talking about where you've got an executive that's got all the great ideas and says, here, go do this. One is, I think oftentimes, especially in those startups, those people in many cases came from industry. They recognized a problem that existed. There wasn't a solution. And their entrepreneurial spirit said, okay, well, I'll go, I'll go create a company to solve that problem. And they see a lot of success and they say, okay, wow, that worked out. That, let's see what other big ideas I have, right? And so I think, so that's one scenario that causes that to occur. I think another scenario, honestly, that causes that to occur is because either the product team doesn't exist or the product team themselves are not coming up with those needs from the market, from those. So, you know, if you're not bringing me anything, we're going to move forward. We're going to do something, right? We're going to go create something. We're going to go build. And if you're not giving me problems to solve, here's some problems to go solve, right? So I yeah. think those two scenarios are probably what I've seen most often cause that situation. In both of those, I think the answer is when you get those inputs or you get those strong suggestions all the way up to mandate, if you can put yourself in a position where you say, you know, that's a really good idea, but give me a week to go validate that with the market or let me go get some market feedback. The only way I have ever been successful at combating, I guess, for lack of a polite term, more polite term, combating that situation is when I can come back with the facts, right? The data from the market. This is what you believe. And I understand the three people you went golfing with last weekend thought that was a really good idea. I surveyed a thousand people in the market and only the three people you went golfing with thought that was a good idea, but it had that problem, right? So 
in either of those scenarios, in the former, we're offsetting what they're saying. And maybe we've, maybe it is a good idea, right? And we validate it and we know that that's a good thing in the market. Let's, let's move forward. The other thing I think in the second scenario where the product team is not bringing new ideas, new opportunities to the organization, by taking that validation approach, at least we're starting to move toward interacting with the market and uncovering those ideas and uncovering those problems. And so it starts to build that muscle, that discipline of interacting with the market. So, I mean, that's, those are the two scenarios I've run into and that, that's how I do, do, you, do, do you feel, do you feel this? I was reading an article the day and maybe others got spoke on this is agile and the whole concept and principles of agile is great for many things, but it might've over influenced product management because there's almost a value place today on speed. We don't do all that research. Hey, Steve, all that stuff you're talking about, validation, that all sounds like bureaucracy. That all sounds like busy work. Agile teaches us just throw it against the wall, see if it sticks. And I feel like we almost encroach too much on the discipline. What do you think? Yeah, so that's that's a great example, Will. So a couple of things come to mind when you mention that. You know, there's that big, at one point in time, and I don't hear it quite as much as I do now, but there was kind of a wave there for a period of time that was, a fail fast, fail often. And anytime a student brought that up in class, I said, well, what if we don't fail at all? Wouldn't that be a better outcome? <laughs> Even better. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then there's that that concept of, I actually got in a debate with a student one time and he was talking about, you know, the exact scenario. Let's just put something out there, see what happens and see how it goes. And I said, okay, well, let, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's approach some of our wealthy friends and you get them to give you a million dollars, and I'll get one of my wealthy friends to give me a million dollars. You start building stuff, and I'll start doing some market research. And let's see which one of us runs out of money first. <laughs> and he finally, you know, he said, okay, because if he miss it, his million's gone. I can go spend, you know, $20,000, get some yeah. insight from the market, and still have nine hundred or $980,000 to go build something. And so when he started, you could almost see him slump over when I said that. It was yeah. it was funny when we when we got to that. But I do think yeah. I mean I don't know what others think, but I think that's that is definitely something that we are sometimes fighting against with this market driven culture. Is this impression? Yeah, courses for courses, right? You don't want Boeing to fail fast, fail often, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. In a mature market, we don't do that, right? It's safety first for for that for Boeing, right? But but what you guys are are mentioning, I mean, the real real reality for so many teams is that they're being pushed to move faster. They're working in two-week increments. Uh, It's hard to think about vision and how you're connected, but that's one thing that individuals and teams can can do. In addition, as Steve, you're, you're talking about make time for giving me the ability to go collect some data. You know, if we can connect those two-week sprints to the business goals, if we can be talking about the granular things that we're doing and how they're going to add up and get to those business goals. Well, now we're talking the language of a head of technology and we're talking the language of somebody in sales, but it really takes us intentionally connecting the dots and thinking about it. And it might be just a couple of additional sentences of context as we're talking about a specific feature, but it means the world to actually accomplish what we're talking about here. It's hard. It is really hard. I think for for many teams, they don't feel as comfortable understanding how their work connects to the business goals they're trying to drive. And that might mean we need to pause and seek more answers around how executives see 
that connection. But it might also be an opportunity to point out where we're disconnected. And that's Mm -hmm. also a good outcome in that conversation. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to echo everything. Well, everything that all you said, but going back to what Steve was talking about initially, like the two reasons potentially why we have that inside out exec, I would add something. Sometimes it's because we don't, product doesn't have credibility yet, or people in the organization don't trust the process. I don't think it's any secret that I'm a big process person. So for me, it was like all about getting a process in place for evaluation of new features and new ideas and new possibilities and getting buy-in and approval and agreement on that process. And then when you do have that executive or somebody who's inside out, you turn them back to the process. Like, you know, similar to what you all have sort of mentioned, but like, well, why did you hire me? Why did we put this process in place? Let me go do some data. And you leverage data to have that conversation versus getting into this really potentially emotional or political discussion. And I would always steer people back to the process, hold people accountable to that, start to build that discipline. So I think that's a big piece of it too. So Amy, to that end, to kind of like put a bow on the question that started this, I was asking about that or telling you about that recalcitrant founder that uh, was very inside out. What I ended up doing, kind of a combination of what y'all said, was, you know, basically the next release that we were working on was a lost cause. It's like, I'm not going to turn that around. It's the one after that. And so like, let's let that go. It's too late to affect that anyways. I just said, all right, fine. We'll just manage that through the process and get it built. I'm going to start doing some market research. And and both I and my team, we went out and started doing win-loss analysis to find out why we were actually winning and losing and some just regular Nahito, like unstructured market research. And the person I identified as the linchpin to the transition or the change management process was actually not the founder. It was the VP of engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made him my partner. And when I started to go and go down and talk to him, I said, look, you know, we've been building features for a long time and we've been moderately successful, but what got us here won't get us to the next level. Don't you want to make sure that your team is not just building stuff, but rather is solving problems that resonate in our market? And that was a pretty quick conversation. He was on board. And once I started to bring that market data to the table, to the executive team, I was able to train the VP of engineering that whenever the founder would come down directly to him to say, go build me this thing. Here you go, Steve. He would say, what problem are you trying to solve? (laughs) Um, And, you know, the founder was busy doing founder stuff, running the company. He didn't have the time to go get market research like I did because that was my job. And so it was always just a matter of like, who's got better data here? And I would always have better data. Now, I don't want to say I won every single battle. Sometimes we would just go build stuff because the founder said so. That's just the reality. But I always wanted to be in a position where I had superior data and I could speak with that data in my pocket, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah it's a great example. And you're also showing how, how to trust the process to Amy's point. Yeah. Or Amy. Paul, can I say something real quick to one of your comments? You said not you didn't win everything. Sometimes you went and built stuff because the founder said so, right? But I would argue that if you still bring data to the table, at a bare minimum, we can make a better decision about investment. We can better make a better decision about the implementation of something. We're going in eyes open versus not yes. having a clue okay. potentially. Yes. Oh, yeah. and I, one thing I forgot. Simple. We're talking about change management, right? Creating a market-driven culture. Simple things like language changes are totally within the purview of a product manager. 
going from feature to problem is an example of that. But I'm sure many of y'all and many of the people listening or or watching this in the future have some version of what I call the idea portal or the request portal where sales can go in and request a feature and so on. Usually they're like, submit an idea, right? Submit a feature you want to... No. What we did was we made a simple change. We called it the problem portal. Yes. So now we're just through the, through that simple language change, forcing people to articulate the problem you want us to solve rather than the feature you want us to go build. Mm-hmm. Again, outside in versus inside out, right? And that simple change totally upended the conversation in a positive way. Now everyone is speaking the language of problems and when language starts, data follows or it will. And so that was like something that I didn't re- really recognize the power of that I think the framework that pragmatic teachers can help with is just powering the language that drives the change. May I ask this, Paul, is, is, there, is there some characters that you're not going to be able to convert? And I'll give you the context of this. Is several years ago, I had a consulting engagement to implement a formal product management framework within an organization. And I was not successful in it. It was a short-term engagement. And what killed me was sales. Because sales was used to ruling the roost. Sales was used to saying and bullying the product managers so they could close the deal at the end of the month by getting the product managers to commit something on a roadmap. And I sat down with these sales guys. And I said, why are you doing this? I mean, we're more thoughtful about this. You know, in three years, it's going to make all the difference. And like they're saying, Will, we think week to week, month to month, quarter to quarter. I'm an enterprise software sales guy. I'm almost certainly not here in three years time. I'm on my next gig. So don't ask me to, and it was a level of honesty I appreciate, but don't ask me to think of long-term impact and technical debt. I don't care about that. My job is to make my number. And there was just incredible cultural pushback. Has anyone else come across that? I didn't have an answer for that, but. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, I've, I've been in that world, definitely. And, you know, you got to show them how they can win and they've got to, you know, it reminds me of one specific enterprise uh, solution that I was working on. They didn't believe in the product. And so they were looking for ways, gaps in features as a way to kind of make up for their lack of confidence and the value that we were trying to deliver for the price. And so we recognized this as just sales resistance. And we really sat down and built out ROI calculators to help them uncover what the value was in the specific enterprise contracts. And it just, it, it's, a, it's an example, Paul, of, of what you were saying and switching the conversation from, you know, feature to problem, from, you know, thinking about discounts to talking about value. And, you know, we, we also put in place an intake system, which showed the individual reps that their voice was being heard. And we gave them the questions and the questions again switched from feature to problem. And they started to realize that there was a lot of value in capturing why they were being asked for things and and, and that need. But it took a long time. I don't think I ever call that a successful implementation, but it took a long time trying to win them over by giving them something they could sell with. Yeah, at all. Oh, sorry, Steve. I was just going to say, Amy, that, you know, we talked about executive buy-in and senior buy-in and all that kind of stuff. A couple of times I've had to sit down and have a conversation with a CEO or a COO or somebody like that, even a CFO, depending on where product reported, and say, okay, you have a choice in this organization. Do you want to be a sales-driven organization? Do you want to be a technology-driven organization? Do you want to be a customer-led organization? Do you want to be a market-driven organization? 
And I can give you all kinds of data that says the long-term profitability and expansion of the growth of this company is most likely to occur when you have a market-driven culture. But if you don't want to commit to that, I'm wasting my time. Yeah. And what are we trying to be when we grow up? Hard conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'll yeah. just add one last piece. I have absolutely run into that, Will. I've seen it with clients that we teach to at Pragmatic. And through like reflection and just learning, I think sometimes the makeup or the profile is that it's a client who's like the company's been really successful and it's often just based on luck. And so to them, it's like, well, it's been working. If it's working, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So then the approach that I take is imagine if things are so well now, just imagine what could happen if you started to follow these practices and how much better they could be. Right? right. So it's not about you're broken. You need to do something wrong or you're doing something wrong and we need to do it, you know, differently and fix this. It's like, what could we take that's working now and make it even better, yeah. but follow these principles to set us up for longer term success. At, at the same time, I don't want to be Pollyannish here. Being <laughs> market driven is not for everybody. And so I would, I would suggest that, that any product leader or product manager or product marketer who listens to this, there are certain preconditions that are almost like an internal scorecard in your head that you have to think about if you're going into a new job to say like, is this company an appropriate candidate to be market driven? I think most are, but not all. Like, for example, I think some of you alluded to this, but if you're like, like I worked with a company once that was a really big name that everyone would recognize large scale enterprise consulting body shop, right? Where they just threw brains on a stick at clients every week and every engagement was custom. And that's how they liked it. And so for them, they're by definition of that business model going to be more customer driven because every deal is negotiated. Every deal is a little bit different. I mean, you could certainly productize some of that stuff, but doing full scale what you know we teach as market driven might not actually be appropriate there. And that's okay. And so the, the question that you know, I think Amy or Will or, or Cindy was, was saying about like, what do we want to be when we grow up? I think it's a pretty relevant question when evaluating how to make change happen and, and the scope and scale of that change. Yeah, yeah I, I, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think one, one more thing, you know, what I kind of thought of as Amy was, was providing her feedback. Sometimes the question you have to ask is things are going well, we're doing good. You know, as Amy said, imagine how much better it could be if we were, we were in this market driven approach. Another one that I use sometimes to bring that dose of reality, Amy was, what are you going to do if one of your competitors emerges using this market-driven approach? Yeah. Right? If you're not already thinking about it and you have to make that U-turn in a very brief amount, I mean, look at uh, disruptors. 99% yeah. of disruptors find a new and better way to solve an existing problem. It's not about uncovering new problems, right? They found new problems in the market or new ways to address those existing problems and you know, if you're in that position, you have to react. It's a hard, hard thing to go do. Great point, Steve. All right. I want to wrap up with two final questions. So the first is we talked a lot about creating the top-down buy-in, what that looks like, how to get there, some different techniques. A lot of the people that are going to be listening to this aren't in a position to like directly affect that because they're not leaders. They're, they're individual contributors. So if you put on your individual contributor hat for a moment and say like, you're a product manager, you're in an organization, you've just gone through like a training, like, like what we offer, you're bought in to the idea of being market driven, but perhaps organizationally, you're not there. You're still firefighting, you're still building the idea of the day, and so on. And you might look at some of the stuff we've talked about today and say, well, I could never do that. 
Like the purview of my role, the scope of my role doesn't, doesn't allow for that to create that change. What can you do as an individual contributor to drive meaningful change towards that market-driven space? I think, you know, I, I'll take a stab at that one first, Paul. I think you hit on it earlier when you said you were in that role and you gave up on the current release and you said, okay, I'm going to work on the next one. What you can do as an individual contributor is carve out a small unit of work, a pocket of work, a release, or maybe if you can work in ha- even half a release that's market focused rather than the you know adding feature focused kind of stuff, start to carve out those places and start small and build those successes. I mean, it's probably part of my mentality, but one of my favorite things was <laughs> to be able to say, I told you so right? To be able to bring those proof points back, right? Okay. You're not totally bought in. Let me show you. Let me demonstrate. And as an individual contributor, if I'm an individual contributor in product, I can still have a lot of impact just from my position in the organization. So how do I carve out a little pocket to be successful? Maybe it's something as simple as I don't need anybody else's help to go write positioning documents for my products and let me feed those positioning documents to the rest of the organization. And they can then see how it helps them, and I start to get their buy-in, right? Things like that, I think, is don't underestimate your power. I think Will said this earlier. Don't ask to underestimate your power as an individual contributor because of your location in the organization within product. You still touch and yeah. impact a lot of people. A forest fire starts with one spark, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was going to say the same thing. I, I tell my classes that, like, you don't need permission to go perform positioning do it. There's some low hanging fruit that we can just start to knock off. And if it works, then people are like, what are you doing? I want like, tell me about that. Let's see more of it. I also would throw something else out there, Paul. I think, and maybe this is a skill, but I think that you have to, as they say, manage through influence versus authority. So we have to infiltrate through influence, being super influential and again, telling that story and getting that buy-in and building champions, right? And so that's, I think that's part of this story as well in terms of an individual contributor. I also 100% believe that thoughts become outcomes. And if you're saying, I could never do that, that will never happen. It's not possible. You've already defeated yourself. So, you know, like that's contradicting what we're trying to do. Yeah. You know, we haven't, we have we haven't touched a lot on it as an individual, what you need to do to go gather data. But I think that that is underlining everything you guys are saying. Don't wait for somebody to tell you, you need to do 12 interviews in a quarter, go out and, and do one and then do another and look at your usage data and just, you know, allocate time, buyback time to, to do it. it. That knowledge builds context over time. And you will find yourself more quickly than you could ever imagine being in the position to be in those conversations and bring a little bit of influence to the table. And confidence. I'd encourage people, there's a formalized change model I've been a big fan of for many years called the Cotter Eight-Step Change Model by a guy called John Cotter with a K out of Harvard. But essentially, the gist is this. Like Steve said, start small. You try and boil the ocean, you're surely going to say it. So something small, compact, self-contained, and then develop a team of allies, of comrades. So if you're going to work with someone in sales or wherever it might be, a small team of like-minded people. Then find your Patreon. Then find your executive sponsor. Not the guy or girl with a stick, but someone who's going to say, 
I support what's going on here. And then I think the key thing I think everyone said here is find those short-term wins and celebrate them and market the hell out of them. Yes. Internally, I mean market the hell out of them. Because Definitely. once people start seeing the success you're having, the insights you're getting, I love the win-loss interview. It's a great place to start, right? Then yes. you can start expanding beyond that. But I think the key thing is start small, get your team of collaborators, find your sponsor, celebrate those short-term wins, and repeat. Excellent. So let's finish up on a kind of a rapid fire round. If you could think of like one, two or three things that somebody listening to this needs to go do immediately, if they're, if they're interested in creating market driven change within their organization, we've talked about a whole basket full of stuff today, but what would be the, the, the top things on your mind that somebody listening needs to go do if they're trying to create change within their organization? I always felt, it's interesting, I had a model that I always used myself, you know, more of a thought, a way to think about it. As we've had our discussion here today, so many of the things that we've talked about fall into these three categories, which I always thought was really important. I used to talk about the three C's of change. What does it require in order to drive this kind of market-driven change? Number one C, commitment. Number two, collaborate. And number three, communicate. And those were the three C's. So if you can get the commitment, understand you've got to collaborate with the rest of the organization and then communicate the why and the how and the success. I mean, I think you're, you're going to be a long way away towards being able to implement this kind of approach. I don't have any fancy method, Paul. I echo what Steve just said entirely for sure. I think it comes back to too, something you said, which is leveraging the pragmatic framework as our language to just start socializing that and have it just be part of our vocabulary. And it will, if we're disciplined to it, which goes to Steve's point about commitment, if we're committed and we're disciplined to it, that's going to go a long way in terms of our ability to shift our mindset. I think for me, the first question is you have to ask yourself is, do I want to be a firefighter or a change leader? Yeah. Nothing wrong with being a firefighter, right? But that may be not what's going to keep you going in the long term. And if you want to be a change leader, for me, it's look for someone else in the organization who you've seen lead change and sort of get that mentorship. Because navigating corporate politics is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It can be quite lonely as well. So, you, you know, it's all about if you can get those collaborators. And I think that's your first step on the journey of change. I would say two things that, you know, build off of what everybody's saying, frankly, but building relationships inside the organization, have them know you, get to know them, their mandates, how they're measured, really start to build an understanding of where you're jointly aligned, where, where you can potentially help them. But with those relationships, you're then going to be able to be the second point here, which is be that driver of talking about value. We tend to talk about all the bits and pieces and the how we do it, but be that one that stands out talking about the value of what we're doing. And I think that's a bridge to those relationships that you're building. Those are, those are key to being able to do anything in the framework and doing it well. That's great. And I'll add my final thought, which is go get the data. Uh, <laughs> everything we've talked about is underpinned by that, right? And, and I think Amy made a great point on that earlier about you don't need anyone's permission to go get the data. And the good news about now in this remote virtual world that we're all in now, the barrier to going to get it is so much lower. You can get quantitative data very quickly with tools like, you know, SurveyMonkey and Pendo and, and so on. You can get qualitative data more inexpensively than ever before with tools like Zoom. You don't necessarily have to go fly to meet somebody. 
if you're at the table with that executive or whoever you're trying to uh, talk to, and you can pull data out of your pocket and speak from a, a position of data, you're talking from a position of power. Now you have to frame that correctly. Like Steve was talking about earlier, you know, I told you so, it has to be delivered in the right way. Uh, <laughs> I, I refer to that sometimes as speaking their love language. Everyone has a different love language, right? You have to understand for the person you're talking to what's theirs. But if you have the data, you're in a much more solid place. Yeah. And for full disclosure, Paul, there was a sentence that came before I told you so. And that is this paycheck every couple of weeks is working out really well, but I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> Would like to keep that coming, right? Yep. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. So that does it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. <laughs>